to the late 1970s when a brand new genre of music originated out of New York and out of the UK. And this brand new kind of music was known as punk rock. Now what punk rock, rock was, especially at its inception, where all of a sudden you had these fast-paced songs with, with high-energy melodies and with high-energy chorus lines. What punk rock was notorious for, especially, was, were their anti-establishment lyrics. Where it was the polar opposite of everything just about that was going on in the corporate music world at that time. It was raw, it was controversial, and it had this element and aura that it was a dangerous thing to be listening to. Now what I'm about to say is going to sound completely and utterly ridiculous to everybody here. But it's absolutely true. And that is that even though God's grace is as beautiful and elegant as classical music is, Christianity is not classical music. Christianity is not the opera or masterpiece theater, but Christianity itself is punk rock. Jesus Christ is punk rock. Christianity is punk rock. Because this is precisely how the extremely snobby religious establishment viewed Jesus as he burst on the scene. This is precisely how the upper echelon of religiosity viewed the original Christians. Where all of a sudden you have this brand new rabbi who is teaching things that people had never heard before. And he and his followers looked radically different than everybody else looked. And they sounded completely and utterly different than everybody else sounded. Where you just have this whole other breed, this, this brand new movement that has started in the world. And it was dangerous, and it was controversial, and it was raw. It broke all of the religious rules of that age. And by the way, it changed the world forever. If you don't believe that Christianity is punk rock, let's just consider this. Where in the first century, the religious establishment had believed that you are to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But as Jesus comes, he says that you are to actually love your worst enemy in this world as if they were your very closest friend. And that, oh, and by the way, that your neighbor isn't just those who look like you and who you choose to like, but your neighbor now from this point forward, it is everybody on the face of this earth. Christianity is punk rock. The religious establishment at that time said that you can only share a meal, that you can only associate with the people who are among the religiously elite. And yet Jesus comes and the religious establishment is shocked. They are offended at Jesus. And that's because he is eating with prostitutes, he's eating with tax collectors, and he's calling them his friends. This is not classical music, this is punk rock. The religious establishment said that, that we're going to know when the king of kings, when the king of kings comes because he's going to be very handsome. He's going to be very tall. He's going to be very militant and very violent and kicking Rome out. And yet as Jesus comes, 
What is it? He's born in, in an animal trough. When his ministry starts, what is he doing? He is this homeless guy wandering the, the, the streets, speaking in parables and in codes. And according to Isaiah the prophet, he had the but ugliest face that anybody had ever seen in their lives. Jesus is not the opera or ballet. Jesus is punk rock. And if that statement offends us, if it seems irreverent, then maybe that is just exactly what our problem is in the church today. Now our text this morning is just one verse. It's found in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 20, and that's very intentional on my part this morning. That's because this one verse, what Jesus says in this passage, it, it strikes me as one of those statements that Jesus makes, that we're very much acquainted with, we're familiar with it, but, and yet oftentimes it's just one of those verses that we read and we don't really process just what he's saying. But in Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 20, here's what Jesus says. He says that, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That unless your and my righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and of the scribes, we will never see heaven, according to Jesus. And so as we hear Jesus mention scribes and Pharisees, we need to answer the question, just who exactly were these guys? Well, Jesus mentioned scribes first, and who the scribes were is that scribes were the men who would copy Scripture down. They would oftentimes be um, trained and apprenticed as scribes as young as 14 years old, and they would live their entire lives with this incredible knowledge and, and really expertise of the Scriptures. Scribes also represented the upper class, the upper echelon society in, in that world in this time. Sometimes if you were a scribe, you could be a judge in the government. You could have all kinds of, of jobs and very lofty positions in the government. Scribes were also were regarded as lawyers. And they had this reputation that, that these guys are the experts of the scriptures. Well, Jesus also mentions Pharisees. Now, who the Pharisees were, were, were more so those who would, would instruct other people in the ways of the law. These guys knew the scriptures just as much as the scribes did. But what had made them a little bit different is that they were also a political party. Now, it was not exactly as it is in our culture, but in our culture, we have Democrats and Republicans primarily. And in this culture in the first century, you had Pharisees and you had the Sadducees, two political religious parties. But it just begs the question, why would Jesus say that unless your righteousness surpasses or is greater than the righteousness of these guys over here, then you're never going to walk into my kingdom. What does Jesus mean by that? Where the scribes and the Pharisees both went wrong was religion, politics, and pride. That's because the more 
powerful that these men became in the society, the more arrogant their hearts had become. Really, the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees primarily is that over time, their official opinion and stance on what they thought the scriptures said took on a much greater precedence than what the scriptures themselves actually were and what they were about. In time, these men began actually writing their own laws and rules into religious legislation. And they started coming up with, 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 with um, sub-laws of their sub-laws, 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 and acting as if they were the only ones who had a possession and a hold of the truth. They began enforcing their own rules and opinions as if they were the edicts and commandments of God. They were obsessed with this rigid adherence to their own laws. And when other people were not as psychotically militant in these ways, they would look at these people and they would condemn them, demonize them, as being spiritually inferior to them. But here's what we need to understand, though, about Pharisees. Not all of the Pharisees were necessarily bad guys. On occasion, we read about a couple of Pharisees. Nicodemus immediately jumps out of mind, who actually gave Jesus a chance. He wanted to know, I mean, truly know who Jesus was for himself. I believe that, that every single Pharisee started off with the very greatest and most beautiful intentions of honoring God in their everyday lives. And yet religion, power, and politics, it infiltrated into their, their hearts and their minds, and pretty much it created a monster in the process. Now, here this morning we are going to conclude our giant series about the giants of the modern-day church. And the reason why we, we are concluding here is because I believe with all of my heart that this is the greatest shine of the church of today. A word called legalism. Now what that word legalism means, it's a very fancy religious word that simply means pretty much trusting in religious code, religious unwritten rules, trusting in your own self and in your own religious performance for your means of salvation. And the reputation that the scribes and the Pharisees have in the church of today, it's, it's like we, anytime that we hear that word Pharisee, what immediately registers in our mind is hypocrite, right? Judgmental person, legalistic person. How could they be like that? How could they be such jerks to Jesus all the time? And all of that is absolutely just so. You know, a couple weeks back, we had had seen John the Baptist in a way that, that maybe we had never seen him And yet as we bring this series to a conclusion this morning, I want to see myself, I want everybody here to maybe even see themselves in ways that we had never noticed about ourselves before. And that's because if we are willing, if we have the courage to take an honest and a very candid look at ourselves, at our hearts, at our minds, we, I believe that we will see that we are more like the scribes and the Pharisees than we might even understand this That's because that very word Pharisee, its definition is one who is set apart. 
And so right off the bat, that, that identifies everybody here with the scribes and the Pharisees, because as Christians, we also have been set apart. We have been called out that we might live separate lives than, than all the rest of the world is living. And that's a good thing. And yet it was about four or five years ago where I took that very first honest look at myself in the mirror. And I came to this excruciating realization, this, this, this you know, a, a very painful discovery, that, that for the most part, it was not Jesus that I was imitating in my life, but that the one that I was mimicking were the scribes and the Pharisees. Has anybody else ever experienced this before in their walk with Christ? Jesus in our text is saying, I want you to be as much unlike these guys as you possibly can if you want to go to heaven. You see, what Jesus is saying here is a salvation issue in so you know, this really strikes me as the salvation issue that we never really speak about. Now, we might speak about legalism and about the scribes and the Pharisees, but when have we ever considered not being legalistic as being just as much a salvation issue as having faith, as, as having love for God and for our neighbor? This is a salvation issue. And I mean, have you ever been at a church before in your life as a visitor, perhaps, where legalism and the spirit of the Pharisees had been running rampant in the hearts of those people. Although there is a time and a place to have a solemn heart in a worship service, that communion especially, really what a Christian worship service is designed to be is this huge part of it, where we are so overwhelmed in joy and in gratitude for all that God has done for us, saving us, redeeming us, that as God's church, we just can't but can't help but just erupt in celebration. And yet the tragedy of what legalism does to our hearts and to the church is that it comes into the Christian party atmosphere of something more. And it makes our worship gatherings feel as if it were, were a memorial service, a funeral that we, we attend every single week. It makes the Christian party atmosphere feel as if we're going to a tax audit with the IRS. It makes us feel as if we are always on the witness stand in this huge trial every single day of our lives by the way that our fellow Christians might be judging us. You see, legalism is a giant because it, what it does is that it hijacks the joy and the salvation of the Christian life. And it turns the very Christian life into into this exhaustive plate spin where we're trying so hard to be perfect in every way, but we just can't be perfect in it. takes the good news and it makes it as much of a burden as the law of Moses was to the Hebrews. Churches that are legalistic usually have these components in them, that, that it has this atmosphere of fear where I have to walk around on eggshells because I have to be flawless before these people's eyes. And if I sneeze, if I make, make the tiniest little mistake, then I'm going to break 19 of their laws and of their rules and of their unwritten codes. You know, we can be against racism 
And I believe that every single person here is against racism. But we can be against racism all day long and still, in one bad moment, be guilty of racism. I believe that as human beings, as much as we would not want it to be true, I believe that every single one of us has at least a little bit of racism in our hearts this morning. It all depends on the moment that we are in, where we see them. But so much more, I believe, that no matter how much we wish that it was not true, that as imperfect human beings, that every last one of us has at least a little, if not a, a huge, giant, raging Pharisee inside all of our hearts as well. Now, you might remember a comedian named Jeff Foxworthy. Now, Jeff Foxworthy is, is world famous because he has this routine called You Might Be a Redneck. And I just want to give you a couple of these examples. And, and yes, it's okay to laugh at these in church. It, it, it's okay to be happy. He says in one of his routines that if your dad walks you to school because you're in the same grade, you might be a redneck. He says that if you've ever been accused of lying through your tooth, you might be a redneck. If you go to family reunions to meet women, you might be a no, you are a redneck if that's true. If an episode of Walker, Texas Ranger changed your life, you might be a redneck. And you get the point of it, but what I would like to do this morning is kind of like a Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck routine. Only I would like to have us explore the question that we might be a Pharisee if. So are we ready for this? First, if we only do religious things in order that we might be seen and noticed by men, we might be a Pharisee. As we know, the scribes and Pharisees were, were extremely concerned about their outward appearance. There in chapter 6 of Matthew and verse 1 on the other page, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He says pretty much the same exact thing that he said in chapter 5. Now, as we know, scribes and Pharisees, anytime that they would offer prayers to God, offer money for, for anyone who was poor, fast, they would make this huge elaborate show that, that everybody look at me. I've been fasting two weeks now. I just gave all this money for the poor. Look at how religious I am. This is what they would do. And yet I am scared of this passage. Though. And that's because I realize that, that we are far more likely to be guilty of this now in the world of today than the scribes and the Pharisees may have been then. And that's because when they practiced these righteous acts so that they could be seen, they were doing these things before 12 people on a street corner. And that's bad enough. But you and I, now with the advent of social media, we have the entire galaxy at our fingertips 24-7. And I've seen so many people, and I've been guilty of it too myself, about either intentionally or unintentionally letting everybody know, look at how religious I am. I know this one person who, who would actually live stream the video of her feeding homeless people. 
with a caption of, I'm feeding homeless people right now. Even her left hand is saying, I should know nothing about this, right? I know about this other guy who did this very kind and generous thing for um, um, a kid. And yet, he made sure that it was all being recorded. And he went straight to the newspapers, reported his own act of kindness to the newspapers, and shared it with, with everyone he knew so that they could say, wow, what a nice guy. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were, were absolutely known for and what they were notorious for. They were more concerned about looking righteous than actually being righteous individuals. Now in chapter 23 of Matthew is that moment where, where once again Jesus just loses it. Jesus loses it as he speaks about the scribes and the Pharisees. And Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 5, he says about them, he says, but they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. Dropping down to verse 6, he says that they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. They love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being referred to as a rabbi by men. Jesus says, don't be like that. You know, it's funny. I, I had this very awkward exchange with a clergyman quite a few years ago in Florida where I had introduced myself to him after he had spoken at, at a gathering. And I, I said, you did a great job, Michael. And he looked at me weird. And he said, no, 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 no. Actually, it is Dr. Reverend Michael. And I said, oh, oh, oh. I apologize. I'm not trying to disrespect you. So as I was saying, Mikey, You know, he didn't really get the humor in all of that. He didn't laugh at that at all. But that's what—that's really what the spirit of, of scribes and Pharisees do to us. It creeps into our minds and it just inflates our egos. It makes us think of ourselves way more importantly than we actually should. And it makes us take ourselves so seriously. You know, before we practice righteousness, as we should out of these doors, it's good that we ask ourselves this question, what is my motivation? Am I doing this so that God can be honored and glorified? Or am I really trying to honor and glorify me? And that's a huge difference. Secondly, if we impose our personal stances and opinions on everyone as the commands of God, we might be a Pharisee. Now, I'll give you one prime example of this in the first century. Now, hand-washing before meals, it's nice, but it was nothing but a custom of the elders of the Jews in this time. And yet the scribes and Pharisees made this as if it were a requirement, as, as this, you know, this grand Olympic sport of sorts. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus exposes this as they confront Jesus. Matthew chapter 15 of verse 2 says, Why do your disciples break notice the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat their bread, Jesus. Well, verse 3, Jesus responds. And he says, Why do you yourselves transgress notice the 
commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. Verse 7, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines what are man's precepts. In this, we can see exactly what their attitude was. It's if you don't believe as us in every, every single conceivable way, you guys are just lost. You are wrong. If you don't do everything our way, if you don't subscribe to all of our sensibilities and preferences, then you are hopelessly lost, my friend. And yet, is this not what is active in so many churches and in so many hearts of Christians of today? I had this guy who was a professor of mine at Adam's Seminary. He visited a church one time many years ago, and he was asked if he could lead an opening prayer. He said, of course I will. But then, after the, the elders had a powwow in the corner, they return and they say, actually, pull off on that prayer. We got it covered. He's like, Okay, that's fine. But I'm just curious, why am I not going to leave the prayer anymore? And he just looked down and he said, well, the other elders notice that you don't have a white dress shirt on. You have a blue dress shirt on. And we're, uh, we just look down on that over here. And I mean, he thought he was kidding. But if you don't have a blue dress shirt on, Whoops. Then certain people are going to look at you as you're wrong. It's a man-made rule. And if you don't subscribe to our man-made rules, then, then you're not worthy to even speak to God. For a long time, I used to have this belief that all these other churches out, out there that are worshiping differently than we are, with pianos and guitars, those people are lost. And I just reached a point where, where I realized that leave them alone. Just leave those people alone. Because are there any areas of my own personal life where, where I might not be doing it exactly according to the book? And I found so many ways that, that I myself was not doing it that, that I'm too busy to, to even look at all these other people. In the American church, especially in Texas and in Tennessee and in Florida, it's this thought that, that it is a requirement that a church has to have a Sunday night worship service. And that's good. And yet many people say that, that it is required. And yet, do you know that the Sunday night worship service started not in the book of Acts, but it actually started late in the 1800s when as gas lamps had been invented, and, and many Christians said that, that we would like to put these gas lamps to use. And what better way to use gas lamps than, than holding a worship service in the evening? That's where something night came from. And yet I spent my entire childhood just completely convinced that we have to do this or we are in error and we're sinning against God. It's good to ask ourselves, is this my opinion? Is this what I grew up doing? Is this my own personal stance? Or is this the absolute bedrock oracle and command of God? And that's a huge difference, isn't it? 
Thirdly, if we major in the minors and disregard the majors, we might be a Pharisee. Again, in chapter 23 of Matthew, we see all of these things that, that really God could not care less about. But that scribes and Pharisees care the absolute most about. Chapter 23 and in verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and, and, um, and again he says, hypocrites. For you tie and mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected all of the weightier provisions of the law. He says, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, but these are the things that you should have done without neglecting all of the others. They would actually have a tithe for their spices that they would eat late at night at dinner. I mean, God never wanted this in the first place. They were very precise in all of these small, meaningless matters. And yet, their hearts were absolutely absent those areas that were most important. And I'm just so relieved, though. I, I'm so glad that on the Day of Judgment, not one person is going to stand before Jesus and hear Jesus say, well, you were a child of mine. You were faithful through and through. You loved me until the day that you died. But you never won a Bible trivia contest. You can't name all of the kings of Israel in order, so... Oh, and by the way, in 2008, you voted for that guy? And you worship in a church that didn't have a steeple? Hey, buddy, I'm sorry, I want to let you in, but I can't let you in, and so just enjoy hell. Next. I mean, that's not going to happen. But we will be judged by how much we honor God's will. That is a major thing. It's not a minor thing. We will be judged if we love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, Jesus is not concerned how, how shiny we make our cathedrals. Jesus is concerned how beautiful that we are allowing him to make our hearts and our minds as his walking churches. Fourthly, if we specialize in criticizing and accusing other people, then we might be a Pharisee. Now, we have one other episode where we see Jesus and his apostles walking through a grain field. And it's on, on a Sabbath day. And the Pharisees jump out of um, trees and bushes, it seems like, and they say, gotcha. You guys are doing something that is not lawful on the Sabbath. I mean, they're just looking for anything to critique them about. And yet, have we not all met, met church cops before? where it seems like the only reason why they're at church is to accuse people, is to make themselves feel much greater about themselves by criticizing everybody else but themselves. I mean, I would so much rather spend Sunday morning at a bar with a foul-mouthed biker game than at a church filled with people who are legalistic and like the scribes and the Pharisees who love to condemn and judge other people. And yet the truth is, is that spiritual transformation never comes about from being shamed, from being berated, interrogated, guilt-tripped, simply because they're not flawlessly immaculate in every way. Transformation only comes when we are in love with our Savior, and when we are around 
other people who are in love with his kingdom. Amen. If we use the Bible as a debater's handbook, we might be a Pharisee. There are many people who love to use God's word just to argue with other Christians, just to flex how much wisdom and knowledge they have in the scriptures. I mean, I'm just so tired of arguing about scripture. I'm at the point in my life where, where I just want to live scripture. I am so tired of having debates about church. I just want to be church. I'm so tired of having arguments and debates about Jesus. I just want to become Jesus in my everyday life. There's one writer, Bob Goff, who says it this way. He says, God does not want us to just study him as if he were some, some stuffy academic project. But he wants us to become the very essence of what love is. And last of all this morning, if we hate everybody else's sins, except for our own sins, then we might be a Pharisee. Many years ago, I was at a church, at, at another church, and we had a youth minister at the time who wanted to reward all of the kids um, um, at Bible Bowl and go to um, go to a theme park at Disneyland. One of the moms was irate about this. She went to the elders and she said that are you not concerned that we have a youth ministry that wants to take our teens to a place where gay people go every single year? That's what she said. And if we boycott a theme park, we're also going to have to boycott every supermarket in town. We're going, to have, we're going to have to boycott every hardware store in town. And while we're at it, we're also going to have to, to boycott our bathroom mirror in our house. That's because there might be sinners in those places. And there are sinners in those places. It's so easy to only see the sin in other people, isn't it? You know, a long time ago, Charles Spurgeon said that, that while so many people are congratulating themselves, I kneel at the cross, and I marvel that I am even saved in the first place. And as I said a moment ago, I, I just reached a point where, where I was so busy dealing with my own sins and my own faults and my own failures that I don't have the time or the energy to condemn anybody else. Well, David, Scripture says that, that you must correct and admonish people in the church. Yes, yes, that is in Scripture. But it does not say spend all of your time and energy always rebuking and, and lighting people up with your words. There is a time and a place for those things, correcting people, admonishing people. But it always begins with that very bold look in the mirror, asking yourselves, is there anything comparable in my own life that I'm doing before I go to this other person and tell them how screwed up they are? We should hate our sins so much more than we even hate the sins of other people. 
See, all these reasons, I believe, is why Jesus says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can talk about heaven all you want to. You can sing and you can daydream about my kingdom all you want to. And yet the only ones who are walking, actually entering that kingdom, are those who are as much unlike the scribes and the Pharisees as is humanly possible. So as we bring this to a close, I just want to, to challenge us in two quick ways. Number one is we need to be honest with our inner Pharisee. We need to discover, what does my Pharisee hate the absolute most? What does the inner Pharisee that lurks in my heart, what does he condemn in other people? What makes him tick? In what ways is he rebelling against Christ and his kingdom and the way that his kingdom functions? Because, my friends, we can play by all the rules. We can never miss a single church service in our entire lives. We can be able to dress beautifully and quote every single verse in Scripture and still be just as lost as a pedophile in prison. If our hearts are in the wrong place. You see, all of this becomes nothing but a straitjacket. When we try so hard to be one million percent flawless and perfect and right all the time, but we can never be one million percent right and flawless and, and immaculate all the time. And that's why we need Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we need Jesus, because we need Jesus to forgive all of our mistakes and to transform this hideous mess of a heart until it starts resembling his more and more. And then lastly, we must make a choice. Danny Bonaducci came to my, my hometown church many years ago. He, uh, um, uh, he was an actor in the Partridge family many years ago. And he just walks into our worship service there, or, or into our auditorium there in Arizona. And at one point he was holding court. He's telling a story about how he overcame a cocaine addiction. About how his wife Gretchen had given him this huge ultimatum of it's either me or it's cocaine. And so, um, really it was comical as he shared the story. He was like, Gretchen... Or cocaine. Gretchen or cocaine. You know, he just really wanted cocaine. And in the same way, you and I must also make a choice for ourselves. Either it's going to be heaven or it's going to be legalism. Either it's going to be our flesh or it's going to be God's spirit. Either it's going to be Jesus we resemble or it's going to be the scribes and the Pharisees. Let us choose wisely.